1: codependent, so connected to each other, so hyper-connected to each other, that when we were apart and then we came back together, we would have that, we both would have that dopamine rush.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Alyssa Altman talks about the book she wrote about her difficult relationship with her mother.
1: My mother has narcissistic personality disorder. She believes that all publicity is good publicity.
2: Here's Debbie, first with a word from our sponsors.
1: Generous support
0: for Design Matters is provided by AC Hotels and Allbirds. When traveling, there's almost nothing worse than waking up in a hotel where the only thing available to eat is from a vending machine. Trust me, I know this firsthand. That's why I love to stay at AC Hotels by Marriott. The AC Kitchen offers European-inspired sweet and savory egg tarts, freshly sliced prosciutto, and signature croissant flown in fresh from France. This space is flexible, offering a communal area to collaborate, relax, and start my day. AC Hotels lets you live life by design, not by default. AC Hotels, member of Marriott Bonvoy, the perfectly precise hotel. Visit AC Hotels at ac-hotels.com to learn more. I try to walk between 5 and 10,000 steps a day. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. But it always seems like I'm running around. What makes everything easier is walking in my Allbirds. Wearing them is like floating on air. They're cozy, like little magic sheep hugging my feet. And they're beautiful. Allbirds are designed with just the right amount of everything and nothing. They have clean lines and subtle detailing and are made from premium, all-natural materials like ZQ-certified merino wool and FSC-certified eucalyptus fibers. For a person on the run nearly all the time, wearing them is self-care personified. I can't recommend them enough. Allbirds are the perfect shoes for any style. Get your own pair at Allbirds.com. In our era of great autobiographical fiction and memoir, and of great food writing, Alyssa Altman is Exhibit A. She writes about her life, and she writes about food, and sometimes she writes about food as if her life depended on it. Her books include Trafe, My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw, and Poor Man's Feast, A Love Story of Comfort, Desire, and the Art of Simple Cooking. Her latest book begins with a pastrami sandwich, but it's not a food book. It's called Motherland, A Memoir of Love, Loathing, and Longing. Alyssa Altman joins me today to talk about her new book, as well as life, food, and love. Alyssa Altman, welcome to Design
1: Matters. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Alyssa, you've said you have pyrophobia, and that's your only real fear— and that you developed it during childhood. What happened? <laughs> that's that's a that's a good question. Um, no one has ever asked me that question before. Um, so when I was very little, uh, my mother ignited pretty much every meal she made. Um, everything, <laughs> um, you know, whenever she she had a habit of um, dousing uh, lamb chops. Which are already really fatty in vegetable oil, and then shoving them under the broiler, and then walking away um, until the flames started to lick out of the chamber stove and up the up the. And I would run, and the dog would run, and my grandmother would try and beat the flames out with um, a usually greasy towel, and it it really it terrorized me, and and. Um, And whenever I've seen fire or been close to fire, which as a food writer is – that's kind of a problem. Grilling was a real issue for me for many years. It was something that I had to learn to overcome. And are you better at it now or do you still have this deep-seated fear? I am apparently – according to my wife, I'm astonishingly better at it. I will now – Grill and cook over open flame. Um, I will force a conflagration in order to brown something um, that needs browning, which is something that I just, even 20 years ago, I never, I wouldn't have done it. How are you with a blowtorch and a creme brulee? I am the world's worst baker. So so my, my wife is an excellent baker, though. And so for 20 Christmases, it's been like maybe this year I'll get her the blowtorch. I was actually listening to um, your conversation with Christina from uh, Milk Bar. Oh, Christina Tosi. Um, Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my God. So interesting, um, just the tools that they use and the the methods that they use. But I just – I would probably hurt myself. Yeah. (laughs) You've described your father as a born-and-bred, dyed-in-the-wool
0: New Yorker, and a cross between Rodney Dangerfield and Mel Brooks. He was a World War II Navy vet and an advertising executive. At one point in your life, I understand that he accused you of single-handedly supporting the magazine industry. In what
1: way? We were very, very avid readers in our in our house, and I loved reading. And because he was in advertising um, and print advertising, there were magazines and newspapers everywhere. I was a uh, an early subscriber to Outside Magazine. Why does a you know nice Jewish girl from Queens in the seventies subscribe to a magazine about climbing uh, mountains that I probably would never that would never happen? They gave me a look at an outside world, um, no pun intended, that I wasn't sure I was going to have access to. Uh, We were big subscribers to, you know, The New Yorker, to The Atlantic. I I came to, to love all manner of print in every way.
0: Now I understand that growing up you
1: loved guitar, which you started playing when you were four
0: years old. That's right. Had
1: you ever considered becoming a professional musician? I did. Um it was something that really rescued me. I mean, we we loved music in in my house. My mother had been a professional singer in the in the late fifties and so there was music, all music, all the time. And as is very common, my best friend learned how to play, was started to learn how to play guitar at four years old. His father was uh, was his teacher and very well-known musician in, in the area. And so because Todd wanted to play, I wanted to play. And I took to it, you know, like a fish to water. I mean, it was just something that I could hear, I could feel, and I continue to play to this day, I realized at, at a certain point that I didn't want it to become work. And I didn't want to ever look at my guitar and think, oh, I really don't want to play tonight. And it had been such a lifesaver for me that I always I always wanted to pick it up with you know with joy and, and pleasure. Given the reach and
0: the stature of your food writing today. Those who don't know you well might be surprised to know that while your father was a foodie, your mother believed in Swanson's frozen dinners, the Gorton's fishermen, and green giant canned vegetables. Is that true?
1: That's that's
0: absolutely true, right. Um, can you tell us what she did when your fourth grade class celebrated Texas
1: Day and you volunteered to make the Texas State Dish? Wow, that's digging deep. Yes, yeah, she sent my father out to our local associated grocery store to buy cans of Hormel chili and to dump the mill chili into a big pot, and we presented that as uh, the homemade chili That because it was Texas Day, and doesn't every queen's neighborhood celebrate Texas Day? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't even know that was a Texas state dish. <laughs> I learned a lot while I was doing my research on you, Alyssa. Tell us about, because your dad was a foodie, tell us about the secret lunches your father would take you to in Manhattan when your mom was at the hairdresser.
1: As every good mom in my neighborhood, did uh, on Saturdays, she would leave me in the care of my father and go out to the salon. And this was like a a multi-hour affair of coloring and touch-ups and teasing and drying and blowing and so on. And my father would get me dressed. And I was very young at this point, probably uh, still in single digits. And we would drive the seven miles into Manhattan to restaurants like Grenouille. I didn't know where I was going at that point. There were white tablecloths and many, many, many levels of silverware that I had no idea what to do with. And he introduced me to food in a manner that was really um, secretive and sort of on the sly. And it was a father-daughter date without question and we were very, very close and that just really sealed that closeness and solidified that closeness. And at the end of the meal, it was usually a two-hour meal, He would get me back into the car, drive me back to Forest Hills, and before we got out of the car, he would open up the glove compartment and take out a tiny uh, lint brush and roll off my clothes so that when I went back up to the apartment, my mother, who would have no idea what had just happened wouldn't see me covered in crumbs. There would be no evidence there would of, be no of evidence. what had just transpired. There would be no evidence of, of my father's uh, wrongdoing. Right? Did, did you ever feel guilty that she didn't know about these lunches? You know, it didn't occur to me that there was something particularly illicit. <laughs> and it was funny. When I was writing my first book, Poor Man's Feast, and we, and, the, and that was a, um, a, a theme throughout the book, Uh, And I talked to her about it. She had no idea that it had happened until I told her. And she, uh, you know, she was surprised but not enraged and, you know, at at all. Her favorite thing to say is, you know, she has no idea where my love of food comes from. And then, you know, the big joke is that she taught me everything she knows, which of course – is not the case. <laughs> well, well, we'll go into deep detail about this. <laughs> You've written about how you look like your
0: dad, talk like your dad, you're built like your dad, and even respond to the world around you like your dad, and that you even sound like your dad. Your parents divorced when you were still quite young. How hard was the divorce for you?
1: It was, I think, probably as difficult as it is for any kid. I mean, I was... 15 when they divorced. But this Um, was still the 70s. This was 1978. Yeah. And it was very difficult navigating the world in terms of where was I going to be? Where was I going to be living? My mother was, um, you know, a social butterfly in ways that, you know, could sort of make your hair go straight up my my dad fell into a very deep depression and i could see that and i was i was much closer to him than i was to her so my world was turned upside down at the same time there was actually a sense of relief the rage and the rancor that uh, had sort of been the bedrock and the foundation of the home was gone had you started any writing at that point in your life I don't remember a time when I wasn't writing. Um, Writing and music for me were the two things that kept me afloat. You know, I was given a notebook very, very early on. I am almost embarrassed to tell you how young I was when I was given a notebook. And and, um, that was where I turned. I I didn't have siblings. I lived in a world primarily of adults in the 1960s and 70s. It was a crazy time and a crazy place. It was like our own little Peyton place. And that was where, you know, that was where I worked everything out. You know, as soon as I was actually able to start writing – physically start writing. I did. You studied English at Boston University.
0: You also played college lacrosse and played music in coffee shops. At that
1: point, what were you hoping to do professionally? I was torn. I considered long um, long and hard going to law school. And, really? Oh, yeah. And, and I would have been a really bad lawyer. I just would not have been good. And my Professors, my English professors, begged me not to go to law school. My family very much wanted me to go to law school. And so that was that was on the table. And I considered for a long time um, going into academia. And f- from a professional standpoint, that is something that I think about all the time. And it is actually a regret. And you know, everybody says, Oh, well, it's never too late. You can, you know, and I do teach now and I enjoy it, I love it. But uh, going into academia in a sort of professional hole. So, like,
0: Professor Altman.
1: Professor Altman, right?
0: PhD. The, Ph of the tweed, right? <laughs> the wearer of the tweed. Yes, the the elbow <laughs> patches. Right. <laughs> um, you've written this about a first time cooking experience. The very first time one cooks for others is rather like losing one's virginity. You can definitely get hurt if you're not paying attention, but you know that somewhere during the course of the evening, you're bound to have at least some fun, even if it's only wine-related. What was your first cooking and entertaining experience?
1: My first entertaining experience I was really young. I mean, I think I was probably a teenager. My parents were sort of at each other all the time, and I would produce these trays of deli-like salami mandalas. And, and my father's uh, 50th birthday he in 1973, I would have been... 10 years old, and it coincided with um, a really horrible ice storm, the ice ice storm. The ice ice storm of the movie of the the book. The the only ice storm. And the delivery guy couldn't make it up the driveway to the apartment building that we were living in. Everything was covered in a sheet of ice. And I sort of rifled through the refrigerator and pulled out all the packages of uh, various deli meats that I could find, and I put together these trays for my father's 50th birthday so that was really the first time and I did it with a great deal of authority I have no idea where it came from this was not something that either parent was ever given you know to doing and um yeah that and it didn't save them you know it, <laughs> it didn't save them I mean I fed everybody damn my storm right damn my storm right 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 but I know that you. I,
0: I was asking the question, actually hoping for a very specific story about your invitation to four lucky college friends to dine at your then new off-campus apartment. Oh gosh,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the story I was fishing yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's something that I've really sort of shoved into the recesses <laughs> of my. So sorry, I, I, I've shoved into the recesses of my of my brain. I think that there was probably a couple of sticks of butter involved. Um, (laughs) The smoke alarm went off. I think I had to beat at the smoke alarm with the wooden spoon. I think the cats were hovering uh, by the window trying to suck in whatever (laughs) oxygen they could suck in. Um, Yeah, I've never been good under pressure, which made it really easy for me to decide not to be a chef. (laughs) Well, what, what prompted you to ever try again in terms of cooking for people? I love feeding people. I just, I love feeding people. I love having people around my table. And I think certainly that it has uh, a, a lot to do with the fact that I did not grow up with a lot of joy around my dinner table. Um, it actually was more like torture. It was more like torture. You know, nobody talked to anybody else. We we had a little television set, black and white television set that actually sat on the dining room table as if it were a guest um, or a member of the family. I this was in the 70s, and this was during the days of the Waltons, and eight is enough. And you know, I wanted my mother to be Betty Buckley. And, you know, I still want we all I still want <laughs> my mother to be Betty Buckley. Right? I just <laughs> want Betty Buckley. We just want <laughs> Betty Buckley, yeah. So I and you know, she's but that's what I wanted. I wanted that kind of world and that kind of environment. And I was sure. That if I uh, could feed people, that I would somehow be able to create that. You ultimately decided you
0: wanted to be a really good cook, even if it killed you, which it could have, or or any or <laughs> other <laughs> any people, way way. Right, Other people too. Um, right.
1: When did you start to get an inkling that you were in fact good at it? Oh my goodness! I think it was when I was when I was right out of college, and I I really found myself profoundly drawn to stories that were really anthropological in in nature. Um, why do people eat what they eat? Why do cultures eat what they eat? This was in the mid mid 80s and I had come back to New York. From Boston and um, found myself, you know, living in a city that was really changing dramatically in terms of uh, the culinary world. We had gone from a place that where, you know, where I had grown up and I'm sure you remember it of, you know, white tablecloths and everything was fancy and everything was very, very, very French and very traditional to um, amazing noodle shops and great sort of bar restaurants and places like Canistels, and you remember Canistels downtown. And you could make a life of, you know, going out every night and watching this sort of performance of feeding people and enjoying. And, and I was actually living with my mother and my stepfather at that point on the Upper West Side, and I would cook for them, mostly because my mo- he was afraid of my mother's cooking. Um, <laughs> and I don't blame him. Um, but he wanted me to cook the meals of uh, his childhood. He had grown up in Pennsylvania. And so I did. And I found that I loved it. And I was good at it. I was a terrible baker. And I remain a terrible baker. But it's I, so different. It's, it's very different. It's very precise. And I am not... Given to uh, to that kind of precision in the kitchen, I'm just just not what I do. I'm more of the sort of open my refrigerator, what's there, what can I what can I create, and I became so so involved and so drawn to it that I wound up going to work for Dean and DeLuca.
0: Yeah, you got a job where you ran the book department. At the time, you also went back to school. You went to cooking school at Peter Cumbs Institute of Culinary Education, and you said that together the two experiences actually combined
1: to form the greatest food and cooking education one could have. It was a gift, and, you know, when I think about it now, I was twenty. Five, um, so it was possible for me to, you know, be on my feet at the store all day, uh, you know, on those beautiful marble floors, and all day, and then run back to my apartment, grab my knife roll. Grab my apron and go to Peter Kump's, which was at that time around the corner in, uh, from my apartment in a in a um, in a brownstone on on the upper 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 East Side, and do the evening class there, and come home by midnight, just sort of so energized and so interested in what I had just done, and it was remarkable. I mean, it was a remarkable time. Dean and DeLuca at that time was still in its original location at 121 Prince. And it was this small, narrow, long store. And it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, we had uh, we had an importing division. And the foods that were coming through the store, the people coming through the store on a daily basis, uh, certainly the art, art community, um, you know, Leo Castelli coming in, we were their local supermarket, basically, down there. But for me to be surrounded by that, I couldn't have had a better education in food for me, for what I ultimately wanted than I got there.
0: What made you decide to switch to publishing? You started working as an editorial
1: assistant at Ballantine Books in 85, I believe. Right, right. Um, that was right after college. I started at Ballantine two weeks after college. And, you know, I didn't want to be sitting all the time. I didn't want to – I loved – publishing and I loved books, but I knew that I wanted to try something different. And so I wound up going back to the publishing world when the chef at a long defunct restaurant called Ez, uh, which is now or recently uh, was east of... East of 8th. Oh, I think. yeah, right yeah. between
0: uh, 7th and 8th Avenue. Right, right, next on the to south the, side of the Next street. to the
1: um, theater, the, right. the, the cinema. Right, right. Um, she, They were just opening, and she came into Dina and DeLuca one day and offered me the job of sous chef, which was remarkable. And I said, What are the hours? And she said, Two in the afternoon until two in the morning. And I said, I can't. I just can't. You know, other people would have jumped at that. And that was, the, that was the point at which I decided that being on a line was just not something that was going to be in the cards for me. I knew it immediately.
0: You then worked as a publications department manager and book buyer at Collins for four years. You created a line of books focused on food, wine, and travel titles. Um, Then you became a senior editor at HarperCollins and worked as the editorial director of Access Travel and Wine Guides. Now, I also understand that you worked at an Internet startup back in the day where you had to go under your desk to take phone calls. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, can I actually reveal the name of the startup without, uh, a doubt. without a doubt? Yes, it was called museumnetwork.com and this was in I want to say very very end of 1999 early 2000s and our offices were on uh, the corner of Prince and Broadway ironically diagonally yes, dia- Dean DeLuca. Right, diagonally across the street from Dean Dean and Deluca and I was in this new relationship um, with the woman who would become my wife, and the first year, of course, is particularly crazy, and there was no privacy, and so I used to have to literally get under my desk to have conversations with her, and it was it was remarkable. It sort of sadly went down in flames in a, in a very short time, but it was a great way to see if the Uh, The dot-com world had anything for me, and I had anything for it, and the answer was no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you met your future wife, Susan, online, and you were, at that time, uh, your profile stated that you were looking for a relatively normal relationship with a relatively normal person who actually liked food, who wasn't threatened by it, wasn't allergic to it, and was generally interested in it. How easy was it for you to
1: find her with that profile? Well, back in the day, um, I we met on, on um, AOL, and AOL had boards. They weren't chat rooms, but they were boards. Like forums, right? There were forums, and there was one forum called Women Who Like to Cook. And I was in my apartment, um, which was in Midtown at that point, I had been um, dating very unsuccessfully um, for a very long time. And I came home from a very, very, very bad date one night, dropped my bags and sat down and went on to the forum and wrote this thing and slammed my laptop closed and forgot about it. The next morning found that I had over 200 responses. Wow. Um, Yeah, really interesting responses. Um, Somebody uh, responded and said that they were uh, looking only for a um, plutonic relationship. And I, I was like, didn't you read the part that I said that I was an editor? I mean, is that you know <laughs> a, pluton- a, pl- a Plutonic relationship, right? <laughs> um you know I don't know, does that mean you're looking for a Pluton or somebody that lives on Pluto? Uh, I don't I don't I don't know. And Susan I wanna say it was two hundred and four or something like that. And and I Literally, my finger hovered over the – and we still talk about this. My finger wow. hovered over the delete key and something told me to open it up and I did. And Why it, were you going to delete it? I think probably because her her screen name was Snoot one two three. Fair enough. <laughs> and after um after many of the women I had met, I was just like, Yeah, no, so, you know, somebody named like, you know, Beth would be fine. That's a snoot one two three. But I please I, tell me you still call her that Snoot. Uh, well, we do sign our cards that we did oh, right, good, right. Good, Cooking good. woman and Snoot, right. I cannot believe I just said that. But we we communicated for um I wanna say three months. And before we met, and uh, Susan is a book designer, so uh, she tends to just, she does not like the phone. She just likes to design and likes to, and that's what she does. And we, we finally met and um, in January of 2000, and we've been together ever since. You found Zen in gardening
0: at Susan's place in Connecticut. Um, you had never previously had a green thumb. What about gardening suddenly appealed to you?
1: well apart from the fact that it was the way to this woman's heart ah, uh, of course what and, we do for love and and the way to her very cranky yankee mother's heart um, who was very very dubious about this jewish new yorker girl who who had suddenly arrived at uh, at her daughter's home susan came from a family of farmers. Susan's grandmother had been a subsistence farmer in northern Connecticut in the 30s or 20s. And so they are the kind of people who can throw seeds at, not into, not plant, but like at the ground and things grow and thrive. And I took to it, I want to say, our first year together. I mean, there was, you know, we were living in northern Connecticut in a tiny little town seven miles from Litchfield and a million miles from Litchfield, and there was very little work up there. The dot-com had imploded. Um, Susan's freelance business up there wasn't great because it was two and a half hours away from anything, and we planted a garden to eat from the garden. And I discovered that I really loved it. And we spent that whole first year together. I don't remember going to the store really once for vegetables. And I I had to think about food in a different way. I had to think about um, feeding this person I met who I was in love with in a different way. And um, it really changed the way I think of nurturing and sustenance. Tell us about your epiphany with broccoli. As a child? Like most children, I was I was very leery of broccoli. Broccoli came in a can, as did asparagus and spinach. And um, spinach might have come in a frozen Ziploc bag, I think, um, and I hated that. Um, but I discovered that if you cook broccoli um, not until it's dead, the way my mother used to do, and you saute it with garlic and olive oil and... Sprinkle it with feta cheese and treat it with a lot of love. That is very, very delicious. And I can uh, probably eat my weight in it. (laughs) (laughs) You launched your extraordinary
0: blog, Poor Man's Feast, in 2009, and it would go on to win a James Beard Award in 2012. Your posts take readers on an extraordinary personal journey, often giving way to beautiful recipes, You've said that you launched Poor Man's Feast when you realized that after many years as a cookbook editor, a food columnist at a reasonably major national newspaper, personal chef, and a short stint as a caterer in Manhattan, you were far happier eating a perfectly poached egg on toast at home then eating a vertically-plated, pomegranate-glazed foie gras Napoleon in a fabulous new cash-only eatery on the same Gowanus side street where your grandfather was mugged (laughs) in 1967. This is true. Um, Did you have
1: any idea that the blog would end up having the impact that it's had? I didn't. And and I actually had some uh, resistance to creating it when I did um, people who were close to me in the publishing world said you know don't don't use the phrase poor man's or poor and people are not going be they're not going to be drawn to it and you know I started writing it as an experiment um, it was Christmas of 2008 and I initially launched it as a place where readers could come and read 500 words of a story about whatever I was going to be including as the, the food, the culinary interest, and then have the sort of economical parsimonious recipe. Um, started out life actually as something called the Daily Fresser. Um, that's going way back. And... Little by little, you know, I realized I love writing recipes as a cookbook editor, but there are other people out there who do it a lot better than I do, and that's not where my passion is. What my passion was was telling stories, bringing people together around stories of um, you know, what I call the modern tribal fire. This is the thing, one of the things that makes us human is the fact that we break bread no matter who we are, wherever we are. What our whatever our lives look like, and everybody has a story. And so, in two thousand and eight, um, Christmas time, I launched this, and I thought, you know, who's going to want to read long form or longish form narrative? And everybody told me that you know, no one wants to read it. Um, TLDR, right? Right, right, exactly. And Susan designed the uh, the header uh, for me, and I hit, you know, I hit publish. And that was how it started. And the great thing about um, blogs is you can experiment. Um, you can experiment with narrative voice. you can experiment with style. You can experiment with um with recipes, with the kind of recipe. And you you know you're with the benefit of analytics, you can see what flies and what doesn't fly. And across the board, the most successful posts that I wrote were the long form stories uh, that compelled other people to tell me their stories. And it was, it was a remarkable uh, learning experience. It was great. The blog led to your 2013 book, Poor Man's Feast,
0: A Love Story of Comfort, Desire, and the Art of Cooking Simple, in which you discuss your relationship to food and your family as well as your relationship with Susan. And you were a foodie, and you talk about how you thought you'd impress her by bringing in food from Manhattan that she couldn't get in her own town grocery. What was her reaction to
1: that? She was touched. She was bewildered. She'd said famously, You know we do have food in Connecticut and I think that she sort of silently made it her job to kind of undo, unknot the the world of uh, fancy New York food that I had um, grown up in, that I had – sort of plunged myself into in cooking school. I, you know, when I went to Peter Kump's, I, I was taking a, a course that was a very traditional French course. Everything was, you know, um, sauces and so on and so forth. And, and, um, and she was very happy with um, a perfectly poached egg on a piece of toast. Did you have to relearn how you were going to be cooking? I had to. There was an adjustment. There was definitely an adjustment in terms of uh, my understanding of what sustenance is, um, what sustenance and nurturing at the table, what that what that means. I have often talked about the wonderful movie Il Postino, um, and the very beginning scene, the first scene in that movie, uh, is a father and son, and they're sitting across from each other, son, obviously, postman, sitting across from each other, and they're sort of, as as we would say in my family, they're fumfering at each other, right, you know, and in, in Italian, and they're slurping soup. And that is the definition of a poor man's feast, and they that was what they... Could afford and it was, it was like you know it was like gold, and so I had to really understand that or relearn. Food is what we you know what we nurturing is what we make of it. Sustenance is what we make of it. It doesn't have to be tall. It doesn't have to be vertical. It doesn't have to be glazed in, you know edible gold. I thought it did um, for a long time. We don't eat that way anymore. We haven't eaten that way in, in a very long time. Thank goodness. Alyssa,
0: your next book, Trafe, My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw, in many ways saw you moving beyond prose primarily anchored in food. Was this a conscious decision? Was this something that you felt you needed to do to
1: evolve your um writing style? I felt very much that food had been my jumping off place. Food was the thing that brought me to writing, to writing in a in a way that um, I, I never considered myself a food writer uh, when I was in college, there was no such thing. There was, there was, you know, gourmet and and you know, brilliant writing in gourmet, and but I never, no one graduated from college in nineteen eighty five with the plan to become a food writer. That was just not in the cards. When I started to write Trafe, I knew that I was going to be writing from a place that was going to have its roots in. Uh, the unacceptable and trafe is the unacceptable, the dirty, the other, um, the um, illegal, the illicit, the things that you're not supposed to have. Um, that's you know certainly the definition of trafe, and in that way, the book I felt did have its beginnings in food and certainly a food consciousness. Um, The story of assimilation, when people come to this country or they go anywhere, they assimilate almost always with food before anything else, food and language. This was the backstory to Poor Man's Feast. This was the story of how a family came to the United States in the earliest part of the 20th century and evolved and the decisions that they had to make over a particularly complicated time in American history. And, and you know, my grandfather uh, was a – my father's father was an editor at the Jewish Daily Forward and at uh, Tugblot, uh, which, uh, which is uh, the day, um, Yiddish-language newspapers, and he had left his shtetl in 1905, certainly un- at 11 years old, unaware of the fact that everybody he left behind was going to perish. And when he came here, he had to make decisions. He was also devout. And he had to make decisions about what he was going to carry with him and keep from the old world, um, the old country, and what he was going to let go of. Um, And that story was passed on to my father. And we all carry it. We all carry it to a certain degree. I don't have the level of gastronomical um, devotional paranoia that uh, my father had when he, you know, ate bacon to the degree that, you know, he, was he cu- loved bacon. He loved all pork products. He did. And he taught me to. Um, and my, you know, my grandfather never went near it, uh, was never in the same room with it. You know, Trafe is certainly that culinary thing, but it's also about being on the outside looking in. It's an appropriate
0: prequel in many ways to your current book. I, I, I think knowing as much as I do now about your life, it, it really is a, a foundation of so much of what you bring to Motherland. Um, and you've said that every writer has a primal story, the one that won't let go, the one that keeps us awake at night and informs everything else we create. And you've written that for you, it is Motherland, your memoir of love, loathing, and longing. Congratulations on this powerful new book.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've stated that the mother-daughter relationship in all its complexity is as old as time. It forms the bedrock for the way we nurture ourselves and think about nurturing others. Unfulfilled, it can bear the fruits of depression and addiction and want. And to say that you and your mother had a codependent relationship for so long is a bit of an understatement. And indeed, you use the term addiction.
1: How were you addicted to each other? I believe that, you know, we get a dopamine rush wherever we get it. Dopamine is a chemical release. And some people um, have that dopamine rush from um from sex, some people have it from shopping. Some people have it from from drugs. Um, drugs, from alcohol, from you know, or combinations of all of those things. And my mother and I were so codependent, so connected to each other, so hyper connected to each other that when we were apart and then we came back together, we would have that. We both would have that dopamine rush even if we came back together in a way that was negative. Um, When I lived in the city, it was very common for my mother to uh, show up in the lobby of my uh, office building and my boss would come upstairs and say, your mother's here again, or I would come home from work and find her sitting in my lobby. And um, invariably, I would say to the doorman, why didn't you send her upstairs? And she would and he would say, because she didn't want to invade your privacy. So this kind of complicated, complex, um, sli- slightly twisted, the thing about this is that she had the same relationship with her mother. And her, so that's what she knew. That's what she knew. This was her normal. This was what she knew, even at its most negative. Uh, Upon my mother and father's marriage, my grandmother was gifted a a set of keys to the house and she would just arrive whenever and my grandmother was a wonderful woman but she was a very difficult woman and I can't help but think that that did not help my parents' very uh, challenging um, relationship. But we we are – we have had that addictive quality to our relationship over the years. You frame the juxtaposition around your relationship in this way.
0: My mother is a gorgeous, rail-thin, former television singer and model nearing 80. I'm her short, ever-so-slightly chubby, middle-aged writer-daughter and her only child. Her life revolves around remaining, at all costs, the skinny, glamour-puss she has been for most of her life. My life revolves professionally and profoundly around the very thing that terrorizes her—food.
1: What was writing this book like for you? It was the most um, probably the most difficult writing experience I've ever had. Um, one of the challenges, certainly from a craft perspective, was writing the story from the center of the story while the story was unfolding without benefit of context. that uh, and be- benefit of context and distance. that was very difficult. My mother had had um, a severe accident. Uh, that was sort of the the fuel behind um, much of much of the story, and I would spend my days writing and mining and digging and excavating and trying to make sense of this relationship that we had and have. And then at the end of my writing day, I would step away from it and into the real life situation that I have with her, uh, which uh, was primarily as her, um, her only uh, caregiver. Um, so there was really sort of no breath. There was no escape. There was no way to take a beat, to take a rest.
0: You've written about how your mother called your cooking ability the hidden family secret. You called it a form of self-defense and said that you longed for your mom to be someone else, a 1970s television mom bursting with love and affection. And she wanted a mini-me. She also monitored the sizes of your clothing because she wanted you to also be
1: the rail-thin model. What was that like for you? As recently as, you know, five years ago, we would, I would come in and stay over and um, I realized that she would pick up my clothes off my, off the den chair. And I started clipping the sizes out of my clothes because I just didn't want to have that conversation with her. I won't say that this is common, it might be common with mothers and daughters who have relationships like this. It was extraordinarily um, difficult. And there is um, a lot of uh, shame and self-loathing um, connected to that body image, dysmorphia, not only hers, but mine as well. I've spent most of my life now we are we are radically different in size and in shape. Uh, she is long. Thin, narrow. Um, I think that would be an ectomorph. I'm not. I'm. I am my grandmother's. I got the. You know. I got the bubby jeans. You know. Um, I totally did. You know. And um, I got the the sort of short, wide Ukrainian jeans. And I tried for many years to remake my body into something that she uh, found acceptable and attractive. And it's taken me a very long time. To realize that this is my body, and I could no sooner be tall and thin and narrow, um, you know, than I could have a different, you know, that I could have blue eyes, um, or you know, be a rocket scientist. <laughs> it's just not gonna, you know, that's that's not gonna, that's not gonna happen. Even now, all these years later, we still have this complication to to our relationship. And, um, you know, I, I had a year-long column in the Washington Post about this very thing and I, I had to understand that my approach to food and my connection to food was um, not only about um, nurturing the people around me but nurturing myself and, and what's that statue with a hole in the middle of Venus of Wellendorf? Um, that was the way I described myself for many years. I tried to fill that space with sustenance and and nurturing. Do you feel that you are still addicted in the relationship? I think we've come a very long way. I think that she she would be delighted if I moved into her den tomorrow. I would be probably dead the day after. I probably wouldn't survive it. she would be very happy if I moved back to New York tomorrow, and, I'm, and I am sure, as I'm sitting here, that our relationship would just pick right up where it had left off. For me, I did everything I could possibly do to change the nature of our addiction to each other. So the 14 phone calls a day were whittled down to four. Um, that was a very, very difficult process.
0: And there's still four a day now?
1: There is on average two a day now when things are bad, there there's four. Um, we just got back from two weeks in Maine, and it, the every day was punctuated on you know morning and night with uh, calls. and I don't have siblings. She has no spouse. She has very limited connection to a social life. And so I understand that. Um, she is very, very much alone. and issues of uh, isolation, you know, abound.
0: There were times in the book where I was very angry with your mother. I was really hurt for you by the way she was treating you. And this is said from a person who does not have a strong relationship with her mother. So it's not like I was comparing. I think really empirically you were treated badly. How do you
1: forgive that? It takes a very long time. And I'm not sure that I'm 100% there yet. I do believe in my heart of hearts that short of physical violence and physical damage, one can only do what one can do. I wanted my mother to be a different mother. She wanted me to be a different daughter. We both were not able i because i was young because i was a child and you can't expect a young child to understand and really metabolize the truth behind their relationship with their mother who didn't know she was pregnant my you know my mother didn't know she was pregnant until she was 6 months pregnant until she was 6 months pregnant with me very disconnected from her body but what is that, you know, what does that mean in terms of of a mother's relationship with the child they're they're carrying? I don't believe that she had the ability to be anyone beyond who she is. I also understand now, and I didn't for many years, um that there was significant mental illness. Understanding that and getting my brain around that and understanding it objectively and empirically, that was the thing that enabled me to step back and write the book.
0: Discussing the craft of memoir, you've said that writing from a place of acrimony is ill-advised, as is revenge writing. And you recommend that people step back as far as they can while still retaining a grasp on the story that you have and want to tell. At the core of this relationship, this, this really difficult relationship, there does seem to be love would you agree? I
1: would absolutely agree. I mean, I think that no one spends two or three years writing a book uh, that requires the deepest of deep dives unless they have an affection for their subject matter. My mother and I have a profound affection for each other that is Really, the bedrock of our relationship—it is encased in crazy. There's no, there's no question about that. It's, in, it's encased in mental illness and, and addiction and history. Very, very difficult history. It would have been easier for me to say, I'm not going to write the book. I'm going to leave. I'm not moving to Connecticut. I'm actually moving to you know california or london or you know any of those but i couldn't do that and i couldn't do that not only for her i couldn't do it for myself we do have a, a profound affection f- for each other it's taken us both a very long time to get there and it, you know it sounds it, it may sound trite or flip but writing the book enabled me to get to that place of profound love
0: you said that the writing process was alternatively therapeutic and torturous and that you described this as the most difficult book you've ever written how did you find that that love by the end of the writing
1: i think that you know one of the things that um in memoir that has to happen um and this is something that um I have learned from um, my dear friend, a great, great memoirist, Danny Shapiro. Oh, yes. She's been on the show yeah. several times. Yep. Yep. Yes. Um, I quote just, her all the time. Yeah, just an, an extraordinary um, memoirist and an extraordinary and generous teacher as well. Um, you know, one has to step back. One has to be able to write memoir from a place of some, some level of, of distance, and at the same time, um, the memoirist also has to be able to write oneself as a character, and that was something that I had to do. And you're as hard on yourself as you are on your mom. <laughs> well, you know, there's that famous Vivian Gornick quote that I love, and I and I I have it actually tacked up on my desk above my uh, my computer, and that is. Um, for the drama to deepen, we have to see the cunning of the innocent and the loneliness of the monster. And we all have shadow sides, all of us. And understanding that and writing my way through that, um, seeing myself from every angle as a character, seeing my mother as a character, understanding her past, understanding the world that she um Uh, that she grew up in, the difficulties that she grew up with, that enabled me to find the compassion. And where there was compassion, there was love. I don't think it's always that way. You can certainly feel compassion for someone without feeling love. Um, But in our case, I mean, it it really... My mother has has a very childlike way about her. And that's because she never advanced beyond a certain point. I could no sooner turn my back on her than I could turn my back on a two-year-old running into oncoming traffic. Um, and And I feel that way with every fiber. You've said that you
0: could go down the trite road and say that healing is always possible, but perhaps the most important thing that you hope mothers and daughters reading Motherland will take away from the book is the possibility of understanding we tend to look at our mothers and the complicated relationships we have with them in something of a vacuum. Our mothers are our mothers. How did your mother respond to the book?
1: My mother has narcissistic personality disorder. Okay. And so she believes that all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> um, and I'm serious. I'm completely, you know, completely serious about that. My mother has uh, read all of my books and. In this book, when she, when she started reading it, I really sort of – I was very, very concerned. And she called me, um, I want to say about a week into the reading, and she said, I want you to know that I think that it's 99% accurate. And when she said that, I was rendered speechless. Um, I was standing in my kitchen with Susan um, rendered speechless and because for a, for a narcissist, someone who actually has that diagnosis, to be able to say that somebody else's view of them and their writing of them and their description of them is 99% accurate is uh, tremendous. That she was able to step away from her own illness and her own self-absorption to see that. She's been walking around the city describing it to people as her book. So um yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. It's incredible though that she
0: understood that it was true. That is such a tremendous statement about your view of reality. It must have been incredible to feel that.
1: You know, I it was incredible to feel that. Um I was very surprised. And I and I spent a lot of days waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I'm still, you know, when I was out on book tour, waiting every time the phone rang, I was like, oh, my, looking at my cell phone and thinking, oh, no, you know. This is the call. This is the call where everything's going to change. Um, and I got that call when Poor Man's Feast came out, and it was not pleasant. It was not a good call. But, you know, I tell my mother's story in this book. And when um, when my publisher gave me the contract to write this book. I called my mother and I said, you know, they want me to write this book. And it's going to be about us. And it's going to be as clear as I can make it. And is that okay? And when I said that, I wasn't sure, as the words were sort of coming out of my mouth, if she said, no, I don't want you to write it, what would I, you know, what would I have said? What would you have said? I don't know. I really, I, I probably would have honored her... Request to wait. I will say that my mother, um, you know, my mother has a story to tell, and my mother's background and childhood, which is revealed in in Motherland, is something that really explains who she is. My mother doesn't have the gift of words. She's a brilliant singer. She's a wonderful singer and a performer, but she's not a writer. And I think that. Um, the fact that I was able to see her as the young child she was and write that story, write her story um, with compassion and understanding was something that she was grateful for. She is grateful for. Well,
0: there is a tremendous amount of empathy. You've stated that we all don't live happily ever after. That's fantasy. That's fairy tale. Reality is steeped in the unknown, the discomforting, the ambiguous. It's not only okay to leave threads a little untied, it's utterly human. And I do think that this is a story about humanity really at its deepest and most connected and what we mean to each other. I read that your mother's only gripe about the reviews of the book was that the Washington Post got her age wrong.
1: <laughs> that was that's actually that's actually right when I was writing the column for the Washington Post. She knew I was writing the column, she knew it was about food, and again, you know, we waited for the explosion, we waited, you know, and and the explosion came only when they revealed her age. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know, can I can I say the S word on that? I can say yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Sorry, um, yeah. It's all good. no. I I you know my mother my mother will always will, my mother to this day tells people that she's sixty five. Yes, and I and I say to her, you know, mom, you you look great for 84, 84 but you look like shit for sixty five. And um she doesn't understand that. Well you know? tell
0: her that Coco Chanel always said she was ten years older, <laughs> so that people always thought she looked amazing <laughs> right, right, for her age. Right. Right. That she might like that. I <laughs> Alyssa, I have I have one last question for you and then I'd like to read what I think is one of the most extraordinary quotes that I found in my research. I understand you keep a copy of Myra Kalman's Principles of Uncertainty on your nightstand.
1: What about the book resonates with you so much? Oh, my goodness. What about the – what doesn't resonate with me? Um, Myra's sense of humanity and color and pathos, um, pathos and humanity go hand in hand. We all have a shadow side and her work exhibits that in the most profound – profound of ways and whenever I am in a place of difficulty or depression or hopelessness that's the book that I turn to and I can I can breathe again I'm not a good breather I'm not a good natural breather I have been told and I often forget to breathe when I read Myra's work I can breathe again thank you thank you thank you
0: now I'd like to close the show with this quote, which I think is something that everybody should have pinned up on their bulletin boards by their desks. This is by Alyssa Altman. You can write anything. Anything. Tilly Olson famously began writing in her 60s. Shirley Jackson watched the world around her, put pen to paper, and turn the universe upside down. No one can tell you what to write and what not to write, what to create if writing isn't your thing, and so you must. Tell your story. Show it. Paint it. Sing it. Cook it. Write it. It's yours, and no one can take it away from you, although many will try. Don't let them. (laughs) Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Alyssa Altman's latest book is titled Motherland, a memoir of love, loathing and longing. You can see more of her work at alyssaaltman.com and poormansfeast.com This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank AC Hotels by Marriott and Allbirds for their generous support of this podcast. And remember we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: If you love this podcast please consider contributing to our brand new patreon community members get early access to the podcast transcripts of every interview invitations to live shows q a sessions with guests and a brand new annual magazine you can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash debbie millman if you subscribe to this podcast through apple podcasts please write a review or link to the podcast on social media Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Master's in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.
0: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.